You're listening to The Chain, a science podcast where we bring what is new in biologics and protein engineering to the community of scientists working in this field. We discuss the latest developments with leaders who are on the front lines of cutting-edge research. Thanks for listening to The Chain. I'm your host, Rory McCann, and I am recording this episode from my apartment outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Like many all around the world right now, we are being advised to stay home during one of the greatest public health crises in decades. In light of these current events, The Chain is bringing more coronavirus-specific content from different scientific angles, and today I'd like to discuss COVID-19 from a public health perspective. And joining me today is Dr. Rita Rio. Dr. Rio is an epidemiologist and professor in the biology department at West Virginia University, where she teaches on the evolution of infectious disease. She also has an adjunct position in immunology and microbial pathogenesis in the WVU School of Medicine. Dr. Rio, thank you for joining me on the chain. Hi, thank you for having me. So I first like to jump into the question of social distancing from your expertise, is social distancing enough to slow the spread of coronavirus? Do you think that shelter-in-place orders are the most effective way to slow the spread, and how exactly does that work? Definitely. I think, you know, right now where new norms are being uh, explored and they're being put in place, I think everybody's kind of learning how to deal with this as the situation evolves. And I'm not really sure if there is a right answer in terms of, you know, contrasting social distancing versus a shelter in place order. I think social distancing, we have to understand that it relies on individual accountability. And then there, there's several examples that have been highlighted in the news that show that people aren't really taking this seriously, like media reports coming from certain beaches and from popular hiking trails and all that. So, um, it may be that the shelter in place orders, people will adhere to these rules better because they are much more detailed. It may also be that we need to evaluate what may work best in different contexts in different communities. And, you know, in terms of the social distancing um, and shelter in place, I think there always has to be an emphasis on the role of fomites. Um, in uh, disease transmission. So even if you do social distance, you still have to remember that, you know, with COVID-19, there is a significant role in, of, of fomites where we know that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can be uh, stable as an aerosol for hours um, and also on different types of surfaces for days. So is there any evidence that the virus could become less transmissible either through the air from person to person or via fomites during the summer months? I think the um, that the belief uh, mostly arises from data which demonstrates that there's a, there's a seasonality towards certain infectious diseases. And with the respiratory viruses, um, I think that the lower case numbers are in the summertime are really largely driven by changes in human behavior during these months. Mm-hmm. And we tend to um, be outside more. University and K through 12 schools are also on break. So there's a lot, the far less opportunities for transmission, um, especially when a pathogen like the SARS-CoV-2 exploits our natural behavior for its spread. But like in the same vein, I think we should be wary of this as many areas around the world are currently in their summer months and are still reporting significant COVID-19 infections. And even like on a national um, scale, look at 
areas like Florida, where there is also significant case reports. A recent report from the Imperial College London appeared to show a spike in cases in either June or July, even with containment efforts. Um, Are we looking at isolation and social distancing methods lasting well into the summer? Yeah. So this modeling paper out of Imperial College London made big headlines because they compared two different strategies to try to contain the COVID-19 within human population. So they compared mitigation with suppression efforts, and they really wanted their aim where there was to reduce COVID-19 mortality and the demand that it places on healthcare. So it's important to note that this modeling paper was done in the context of a high-income country. So they really just looked at countries like specifically the UK and Mm -hmm. USA. And so what they did here is they looked at mitigation and uh, mitigation really uh, focuses on slowing but not necessarily stopping epidemic spread. The goal there is to reduce the peak healthcare demand while protecting those most at risk for a severe disease from infection. And this is in contrast to suppression efforts. And suppression efforts are much tighter, right? And much more, um, much more controlled. Much, many more people have to be involved. And this aims to reverse epidemic growth and reduces the case numbers to low levels and maintaining the situation indefinitely. And, and what this study showed through their different, um, with their modeling um, simulations is that mitigation efforts will still likely result in a significant amount of deaths and also overwhelming the healthcare system many times over. And most notably, these ICUs yeah, that have quite limited, um, you know, we're seeing the reports of um, you know, limit, li- limitations and like the ventilators and whatnot. And in this paper, uh, suppression is the preferred policy option for countries that are able to achieve this. And they say this is probably going to be important until a vaccine becomes available. But they do note that if we have some good surveillance measures in place, that we might have temporary periods of re- relaxation. Um, where they're going to be informed by trends in disease surveillance and then control measures would have to be reintroduced again when the case numbers rebound. What impact will the vaccine development have on current suppression policies? Developing a vaccine is going to be super important. I think that there's a lot of really smart uh, individuals that are working on this. And impressively, it seems like there's concerted efforts, right, and that people are working in parallel And um, I think we're going to have to rely also on like serological testing to see who's already been infected uh, in the past and may have, uh, you know, just uh, a natural immunity to this. Right. So if you become infected and clear your infection, you could, you know, you would, you know, you're basically that's what a vaccine is, is a a simulated uh, infection. Right. Yeah. So I think serological tests are going to have to be performed to to better understand in the population how many people have actually been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 virus. And then, of course, that's going to, you know, um, inform on, you know, vaccines and uh, vaccine design and, and whatnot. What are we looking at in the case of potentially a hidden infection pool? So one thing to point out is that... um that because it's a spillover from uh, a non, you know, non-human, 
we are all immunologically naive to this, right? So that's why it could burn through, right? And we'd see such high um, infection rates because nobody has this underlying immunity yet, right? We have never seen this uh, virus in our population. Now, once we become exposed and if we mount the appropriate defense, right, we'll survive it. And then we should have some type of immunity to the virus. Now, this is all work in progress right now, right? Because this is what's happening right now with, you know, in, with individuals. You know, what, what is the proportion of undetected cases? What's, what, how big of an infection pool is there? Well, I think there's multiple independent studies which support infectiousness. That's, um, that is like onward transmission from individuals that have mild symptoms. And maybe even more significant in driving the spread of COVID-19 is from those individuals that have not yet presented symptoms. So these are individuals that are infected with COVID-19. They aren't aware, but they certainly are transmitting to others susceptible. And the dangerous part is that these individuals that they're transmitting to may, may be much more vulnerable to serious consequences of the disease. So we really don't completely understand what these proportions are, and we're really grabbing data points as the situation unfolds. But I think, you know, again, there should be emphasis not only on rapid diagnostics to identify active infections, but also serological tests, which will allow us to understand who's already been exposed in the population. Now, recently, there have been reports coming out of China that there were no, recently, no new cases of coronavirus. And out of Italy, the death toll has stopped climbing with each day. How do you expect that public health officials would respond to these positive steps towards uh, slowing the spread? What do you expect the response of public health officials to be? what would you guess are the next steps? Yeah, so um, I think a lot of uh, the public health community has their eyes on countries like China um, and trying to understand what's going to happen once uh, their control measures start easing up and what the case numbers will will uh, look like, right? Um, I think we all have to understand that this came from, right, this spillover came uh, and started with a, at first, a very small amount of individuals that were infected. And within three months' time, you know, it, it just spread to pandemic levels. I think it's this, this situation is so new and it's the data points are still being gathered as they are generated. We still don't understand, right? And we don't understand. And I don't think we're going to understand until we know, again, how many people have been exposed to this disease and then, you know, once if their serological tests come back like positive that they've been exposed, we know that they can't get sick from COVID-19 again. And this is also going to inform us on how long does this immunity last, right? Um, with coronaviruses, there's, um, you know, there's been some studies that show that it may not last that long, but again, lots of data being generated right now. But yeah, I think the, the positive reports from places like Italy, um, I think it's because, you know, a lot of containment, a lot of efforts have been trying to be put forth into these, into these areas that have been hit particularly hard. Um, and I think everybody wants to know what's going to happen once we ease up on these control efforts. Just wrapping up, I, I'd like to know 
for the general population being asked to put many aspects of their lives on hold, what can they look for in terms of progress in the next few weeks, months? What are some data points that they can look to to know that we are making an impact? This is moving in a positive direction. Yeah, so I think with the social distancing, stay in, in, in shelter, you know, shelter in place orders, I think that we all have to be understanding mm-hmm. and patient that this is going to take some time. Uh, we won't see effects of these until days, weeks later. We're also going to see um, huge advancements in, I think, surveillance. You know, every day I see new tests, uh, new testing um, capabilities being discussed, um, therapeutics being discussed, uh, vaccine development. Um, you know, traditionally it's been a very sequential process. And what I see nowadays is that um, things are being done simultaneously to try to ramp up um, its production and availability towards uh, to the human population. We need to be patient. We need to be wary. We need to have a consciousness that it's not all just about us, but, you know, as individuals, but us as a community and global health is really meaning something right now. And if everybody puts their own individual part collectively, we can make a big, big difference. Um, I, and so, you know, in this next uh, few months, we should definitely, you know, in terms of medicine being, it's, uh, we're going to be seeing some huge advancements being made. And hopefully this will be also going to inform us on how we could better respond to situations such as the COVID-19, which are most almost certain to arise again, given the hyper-globalization of our world today. That's a really good point. Dr. Rio, thank you for taking time to speak with us and for sharing your expertise and sharing a little bit of hope in what is definitely an uncertain, unprecedented time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on The Chain. Tune in next time for more conversations about science, research, and exploring the world of protein engineering.